I'm Amy Wagner. Welcome to the best of Simply Money. Each week we put together some of our favorite segments from the 55 KRC radio show exclusively for this podcast. Earnings season is in full swing. What the latest batch of results means for you and your money and our economy. You're listening to Simply Money. I'm Steve Sprovac. The corporations in your 401k had some high expectations coming into this earnings season. Here's how they are faring. Joining me now is Brian James and Andy Stout. Andy is the chief investment officer of Allworth Financial, managing some $12 billion, plus or minus, from right here in Cincinnati. Uh, Brian James is a CFP on the Allworth team and a regular at uh, Simply Money. You know, Andy, um, this is earnings season, and there's a lot of expectations about can earnings continue to grow in in this economy? And and it looks like uh, at this point, it looks like we're seeing exactly that, aren't we? Yeah, we're seeing earnings come in pretty strong for the uh, third quarter compared to the third quarter last year. Now, we all know the third quarter last year, that July, August, September period, wasn't the strongest for the economy, right? But Wall Street analysts were already expecting earnings to grow about 28% compared to that same time last year. And what we're seeing is that it's actually coming in stronger than that at 32%. And that's a trend we've been seeing over the past uh, few quarters where Wall Street has high expectations and then the companies are actually reporting even higher earnings than what Wall Street was forecasting. So, Andy, uh, last week we were talking about Fifth Third and P&G. This week on stage is General Electric. What do you think is coming from GE? Well, GE, uh, I think if you look at the big picture uh, for them, you know, they've done a pretty good job at turning around uh, the company. If just over the past uh, couple of years or even less than that, uh, they have reduced their debt that's outstanding by about $50 uh, million. So when we're looking at that big picture, we're seeing a drop in debt. We're seeing them being more efficient. Uh, when I talk about more efficient, what, one thing that I'm looking at is improved margins. So they're controlling their expenses better. So I expect that even over the uh, the, the tenure of Larry Culp, when I think he's going to his contract ends in 2023, we should be looking at some high single digit profit margins uh, for the company. So definitely moving in the right direction reducing debt, you know, overall, when what's expected uh, by the company. Uh, looking at earnings, once we make some, oper- for operating earnings at least, uh, coming in around 43 cents a share. So wouldn't be shocked if we uh, see a beat there. I mean, for all, GE has beaten five of the past eight uh, quarters. Well, I think um, GE's turnaround is kind of like turning a super tanker around. It, it, they had a lot of momentum going in, in a bad direction, and it, it took some time, but it, it sounds like they've gained some good good ground. Hey, uh, Andy, I, I want to talk a little bit about earnings because we're, we're talking about year-over-year earnings increases, and, and a year over uh, a year ago, um, we were in full lockdown, so you would expect earnings to be decent compared to last year. How, how are earnings faring compared to before the pandemic? Well, if you look at just the total earnings from like the uh, companies within the S&P 500, where we're on pace for not only just now, but also in the future is record level earnings. So, for example, over the next 12 months, uh, the total profits uh, that's expected to be reported uh, by these companies, it's going to be somewhere around uh, like 200 uh 
$13 a share in that general area. And that's uh, a lot higher than what we had seen uh, in, in the past. So companies are becoming more efficient. They're becoming uh, just better to generate profits in this environment, an environment that's very uncertain. So we got to give credit to a lot of these companies and their management for being able to navigate this and the changing consumer trends and consumer dynamics. And this rising earnings, even though uh, stock markets are pretty close to record highs, we've seen valuations come down because earnings are going up. Valuations like a price to earnings uh, ratio, which tells you how much it costs to buy a dollar of earnings. So with these higher expected earnings, the pr that's increasing at a quicker rate than what prices are. So that's a good thing. Uh, but if we still look at valuations overall, we're still a little bit elevated in terms of uh, if stocks are uh, cheap or expensive. It's more it's more on the elevated side. So even though these, uh, these com companies are doing really well, it sounds like, uh, there's also possibly dump trucks full of money about to be shoved into the market coming out of Washington. So there are some spending numbers coming out of these bills that could be inflationary. Are, are you worried about that? Do you think that's going to affect the market at all if these things uh, go through? I mean, if you look at inflation, it is a concern right now. Uh, you're looking at the last pieces of data that's come through, it certainly seems like we're going to be seeing elevated inflation at least through the middle part of next year and you know whether or not inflation continues after that it'll certainly depend on you know what we're looking like from an economic uh, stance right now energy is a big factor i mean if you look at just the the price of oil trading at w where it's at around 85 dollars a barrel uh, and there's a lot of uh, i'll call it the smart money out there a lot of wall street uh, institutions they're making some very large bets that you're going to see even higher oil prices uh maybe like $100 a barrel or something like that. So we have these these pressures. And now, like you said, Brian, we got possible uh, stimulus coming from Washington. Originally, that was going to be looking around $3.5 Got a lot of pushback from some moderate Democrats, so uh, specifically Manchin and Cinema. So what we're looking at now is probably a $2 trillion package, which is still – uh, you know, it's not jump change at all. That's a big number, uh, right? But remember, it is spread out over you know a few years, so it's not just hitting the economy all at once. So yes, there probably will be some inflationary pressure because of that. Uh, however, don't think it'll be a tremendous amount, but it will. I mean, it's it's certainly not non-inflationary. You're listening to Simply Money on 55KRC tonight. I'm Steve Sprovac along with Brian James. And since it's Monday, we're talking to Andy Stout, Chief Investment Officer of Allworth Financial. Hey, Andy, there's some other news uh, out there besides what we're hearing from Washington. And, uh, you know, Bitcoin has been something that we've been talking about for quite some time. But there's there's a new way to buy Bitcoin. We're seeing a couple of exchange traded funds or Bitcoin ETFs. Um, what do you think about them? Is, is this a viable way of buying Bitcoin? Uh, if you want to invest in Bitcoin, it's it's viable. I mean, there, there's no question about that. Uh, but the what the question is, is it right for you? I mean, it's a very volatile asset. It's all over the place. You could easily see a drop five to ten percent in one day. And there's always the fear that you know if you buy, that's when it drops, right? Everybody, I think everybody kind of has that fear, like oh, because they're afraid to get in. But when you think about Bitcoin as a whole, uh, just the volatility of it itself, you need to have a very high expected uh, return to justify its inclusion in a portfolio. So, you, can you use it to buy? Can you use these ETFs to buy Bitcoin? Yes, that's it's going to it's much easier uh, than getting a digital wallet and going through a, a 
you know, uh, an exchange like uh, Coinbase or something like that. Uh, but it still is very, very volatile. So there, yeah, two ETFs were rolled out last week. Uh, there's another one coming out this week. We'll see how it plays out. These are still uh, securities in their infancy. Uh, so there might be some speed bumps along the way, but just at face value, if you want to buy a Bitcoin, uh, it's a decent vehicle from that perspective. So switching gears a little bit, Andy, another thing that hit the headlines uh, in a, in a uh, slightly new direction was Evergrande, the Chinese property developer out there. They, they found some money in the couch cushions and made a payment. Is this over with? Uh, are we worried about them? Are we no longer worried about them defaulting or do you th think this will surface again? I'm sure it'll probably surface again. Uh, nothing's ever guaranteed. And I think if you just look at the history of troubled companies in China, uh, you see bailouts or just complete takeovers uh, by the Chinese uh, state. So I would not be surprised uh, if we do see some more headlines come up with Evergrande. They are not out of the woods. They have a lot of stuff coming due next year, including some big balloon payments uh, on their uh, debt. So that's a bigger thing to watch down the road. And they did make this 83 uh, and, a, and a half million payment, uh, but it took them a while to actually make it. I mean, they, they did miss their first deadline, uh, but they technically had a 30 day grace period before they would be considered in default. So they just slid it in uh, just in the nick of time. And I mean, to Evergrande's credit, have restarted some of their projects, uh, their real estate projects. So that's uh, that's good from for the, from their company's uh, perspective. But China's real estate uh, market is not ideal, <laughs> to say the least. If you just <laughs> look at what's out there, I mean, you've seen the ghost cities. We've all seen those uh, the pictures of just cities sitting there empty. Now, I'm not saying this is all related back to Evergrande, but the real estate industry as a whole certainly has uh, some areas that are of concern. And Andy, it just uh, amazes me that they came up with that $83 million because I think everybody had written them off. Um, hey, you know, one of the questions I'm getting a lot from, from investors I work with is inflation. I, I mean, it, it's back in the news. It, it's been something we've been talking about for a while. And over the weekend, I read some articles where uh, chairman of the Federal Reserve, Chairman Powell, um, he's talking about, no, this is going to stay with us a little while and we're probably going to see inflation in the mid-2022. Um, do you agree? And what impact will that have on the market? I would agree that we probably see inflation until the middle part of 2022. I mean, there's uh, a lot of data that's come out recently that would suggest that. I mean, if you just look at, you know, without going to the weeds too, too much, consumer spending patterns have shifted. Where we used to spend more on uh, services, now it's more on goods. And that that shift was immediately once that the lockdown happened. Uh, and you might think it's not a big deal, but when you start $300 billion of goods shifting from, or spending shifting from services to goods, and you, there's no time to fix any sort of logistical uh, you know, supply chains to make sure that happens. So that's why you're, that's one of the reasons you're seeing these backlogs at the port. So we just don't know how to handle it yet. All this influx of good. I mean, there's what, 60 ships sitting off the coast of Southern yeah, California yeah. with about 200,000 large shipping containers. You know, that's changed. Um, if you look at the actual inflation reports coming through, you're seeing higher food prices, higher shelter prices, uh, you know, just some other 
things that are suggesting that people were seeing higher prices and things that aren't always considered, you know, transitory. I already mentioned oil and then its price. The price of coal is through the roof. So is natural gas. There's labor shortages. And then you got the stimulus we just talked about. So all of these are shifting the thought that inflation will be around till at least the middle part of next year. And then it'll really just determine, uh, it'll, it'll depend on, you know, what the economy is looking like at that time. What does it mean for the markets? You know, you're, your financial textbooks, what they would say is that, you know, stock markets are generally one of the, or stock investing is generally one of the best places to put your money because companies can increase their earnings alongside of inflation. That's typically good. Historically, value stocks have outperformed growth stocks in a higher inflationary environment. If you want to get a little bit more specifically, obviously nothing's ever guaranteed, but that's what's happened historically. You know, on, on the bond side of things, when you do have higher inflation, uh, uh, you can see higher interest rates. And because bond prices and interest rates move in opposite directions, you know, you got to make sure you have a, a very nuanced understanding of that to make sure that your investment mix is tilted in the, the proper way. Maybe you want to have a little bit shorter term bonds versus longer term bonds because they're going to be less sensitive to higher rates. Great perspective, as always, from Andy Stout, Chief Investment Officer of Allworth Financial. Here's a Simply Money point. Corporate profits are one of the most critical factors in how the stock market performs. Fortunately, it's looking good for now. The U.S. Treasury wants a closer look at your bank account. You may have heard about this under the proposal uh, in Congress right now, first introduced in May. Banks would report to the Internal Revenue Service some new pieces of information. Joining me now is Brian James, a CFP on the Allworth team and a regular on Simply Money. Brian, I'm sure you've gotten calls, too. I got one from an incredibly aggravated woman last week that said, hey, I just read the IRS wants to look at my account if I do more than $600 of transactions in it. Is that true? And I told her, well, kind of, yeah. Yeah, and, and right. the thing to always remember with these things is they're, right now this is only proposal stage. What they're after here and the proponents of this uh, process are saying that we are simply looking for ways to uh, enforce the laws that are always on the books, right? So that's always a complaint whenever we have new things. Uh, why can't we enforce what, what we already have? We don't need new laws. Well, this isn't a new law. They're simply trying to uh, identify where transactions are occurring that are not getting captured. So if you think about it, if you, for those of you who work and have a W-2 paycheck, uh, you, you get a W-2 at the end of the year. It tells you exactly what you earned. The IRS gets that at the same time. They know precisely what you made. You're an employee of somebody else who was on the hook uh, to report those wages. Where, where, what they're after is if there might be a situation where, who knows, maybe it's a, maybe a major construction company or, you know, something uh, or a sole proprietorship, something like that, where there are simply checks being written. Some of your, your, your quote unquote earnings are a check that someone gave you and there is no W-2. So the IRS doesn't get informed of that kind of a transaction. Now, why they've come so low all the way down to $600. That's the part that amazes me. Yeah, that's yeah. a little bit mind-blowing. Yeah. The, the idea of tracking major transactions to see if it truly should be earnings that should be taxed, that's not, to me, not the worst idea because heaven knows there's plenty of fraud. Down to 600 bucks, not so much. Now, they are talking about maybe uh, adjusting this to more closer to $10,000, which is a little more reasonable. And, Steve, the first thing that comes to mind to me is we can't, we don't have uh, enough staffing in the IRS to complete tax returns. Yeah, and, uh, yeah. How are we going to create a whole bunch no, of work it, it, and chase it, that too? I, I, I'm, I'm just amazed at all this. And, and there was such massive pushback over the $600 number that uh, Congress backed off and said, oh, no, 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 we meant $10,000. Think about that. I, I mean, if you have $1,000 coming into your checking account from Social Security, right there's 12000 
So they're going to look at you. You know, so there, there's there's a lot of pushback going on this. And I, I tend to agree. The American Bankers Association, they oppose this proposed legislation. They say it's too much information for uh, on too many Americans that, you know, if you're trying to raise money through audits, you're not going to get it from somebody getting a thousand dollars a month from Social Security. You, you know, that that's the part that drives me nuts. They're hitting the wrong people. Right, right. And one of the other things that came out that I found very interesting was it was talking about uh, money moving from one account to another under the same individual. So in other words, if I have, uh, you know, if I build up cash in my checking account from just getting paid and not spending it, I want to move it to my savings account after it's built up for a few months. Well, that could be that's going to show up. Yeah. Yeah. And and here's what Janet Yellen said. And and if you you don't know, Janet Yellen was the chair of the Federal Reserve for, for quite some time. She is now the secretary of the Treasury. So she's in charge of the IRS. Janet Yellen said, yeah, uh, we want to report on $10,000, but it's the people that are moving 2 and $3 million from one account to the other that we want to go after because that's where the money's at. My, my question on her comment is, well, fine, then set the limit at $3 million. You know, then, then catch the big guys. But, you know, what are you going to catch with somebody moving $10,000 from checking to savings? Yeah. And, and so maybe, Steve, maybe that's the point. Maybe they're starting really low knowing that that'll never pass muster anyway, but then the compromise could come at a higher level then something lands in place. So the thing to remember with all these kinds of proposals is they are just proposals yeah. until something is agreed upon. Well, and that, that, that's the good news out of all this is we're seeing how the sausage is being made. I, I mean, we've seen a lot of proposals that have gotten nixed, and, and here's one that, that flew under the radar the infrastructure deal, the, the the really expensive one, not the $1 trillion one, the $3.5 trillion one, um, that I thought it was a gimme that they were going to be proposing a big increase in the corporate tax rate. It's proven not to be the case. Yeah, so this is the one that, uh, as part of the campaign last year, over a year ago now, uh, when, when the campaign was happening, the uh, the Democrats were proposing all these different changes. And they were going to pay for it by increasing corporate taxes. At the very, very beginning, if you think way back to the beginning, they were going to eliminate the 2017 uh, tax cuts that the Trump administration had put into place. That was a campaign promise. The closer we got, that became, well, okay, we will increase them from 21% back to 28%. Now, Keep in mind, it was 39% before the 2017 tax cuts. So the very first iteration of this bill only had them coming back from 21 to 28%. That was a year ago. That became 25, 26%. And now most recently last week, and this is the part that flew under the radar, they said, you know what? We're not going to be able to get corporate tax uh, hikes yeah. uh, pushed through at all. So we're going to leave those alone at 21%. Yeah. And, 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 you know, I think what we're learning is Democrats own stocks too. Yeah, you know, so this is something they could not get everybody on board to raise the corporate tax increase. So, um, oh, okay, so we want to spend $3.5 trillion. I mean, that's the proposal out of Congress, and we need to pay for it somehow. Of course, you know, President Biden says, oh, this doesn't cost a dollar, but, it, yeah, it costs $3.5 trillion. And, and, you know, all right, we're going to have to get the money from somewhere. So the latest, if they, if they can't raise corporate taxes, um, they're going to go after the really, really rich people. So in other words, if you made more than $100 million in income for three consecutive years, now that's a little bit more than I made last year. I'm guessing maybe a little more than you. I'm just under. You know, I'm, I'm working. I yeah. work hard, Steve, but so, you know, I'm, so not, they, I'm not you. They, they, they figure there's about 700, maybe 800 people affected by that much money. And they're, what they're saying is, okay, you own a ton of stock. Maybe you started a company and it's worth billions of dollars. Um, we're going to tax that. Even though you haven't sold those shares, we're going to tax it like you did sell it. And, and that's called unrealized capital gains. And 
we're going to get a one-time windfall from the richest 700 people. And that just that just came out over the weekend. We'll, we'll see how that flies and if that goes anywhere. Yeah, I'm not sure that's going to be very popular. What I am sure is that uh, CPAs and lawyers in the tax field are going to make an awful lot of money finding ways around these things. As we all know, if you have that much money laying around, you can retitle it, you can shove it into different assets, you can buy a bunch of artwork and stick it in a warehouse somewhere, and it's tougher to track the value of that. Here's a Simply Money Point. Spending is easy. Figuring out the tax part is more difficult. You know, Kroger made a bet, and it paid off big time. Sometimes timing is everything, Steve, right? Kroger partnered or bought a company called Home Chef. This tiny little company was $250 million in revenue uh, in 2018. And they made kits of meals. So little recipe in there, everything you need to make it, you can take it home and you can make it. Well, then the pandemic hit, right? Yeah. And we we quit eating out. We quit going to restaurants. And so many of us uh, started running into Kroger and they were brilliant. They put them right in the front of the store. So you see it there and you buy it. Anyway, it has paid off big time because this has now become Home Chef has now become Kroger's next billion dollar business line. I, I never saw this coming. And yeah. That's just the guy in me, I guess. I, I don't think these things through. But, you, you know, somebody comes up with an idea of, well, let's just prepackage all the ingredients to save people from walking, you know, 50 feet in this direction and grabbing that and 80 feet in that direction. I, I'm like, how is that going to work out? But when you think about it, they, timing couldn't have been more perfect. Yeah, I mean, yeah. a pandemic. All right. Well, we're not doing takeout or takeout is you know too much of a hassle. We can't uh, dine in. And, and this brand just absolutely took off. I mean, they bought it in 2018. Here we are, you know, three, four years later, and, and it's worth a billion dollars. I, I, I never saw it coming. But then again, I'm the guy that told the founder of Jersey Mike's, oh, no, don't change the name from uh, from Mike's Subs to Jersey Mike's. That'll never work out. Well, <laughs> may, 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 maybe good I don't thing, know what I'm talking about. Good That's thing always you're a not in marketing. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I'll, I'll stick know, to what I do for a, a day job. I have Boy. a friend who years ago worked for Chiquita, yeah. and I remember him telling me, you're not going to believe this, Amy, th- this new thing that they're talking about doing. They're talking about chopping up the fruit and charging you more for it. Like, <laughs> And I was like, what idiot? What idiot is going yeah. to pay more yeah. for someone to chop? Uh, a lot of them. Amy, Amy yeah. Wagner, yeah. 10 years in the future when she's, <laughs> you know, working full time and has kids and yeah. busy. I don't have time to chop. Come on. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so this kind of convenience, Kroger, you know, just had the best timing uh, and, and a major win for the hometown team. So the next time you go in and you pick up something from Home Chef, well, you know that you're contributing to this billion dollar business. Speaking of how you spend, how you save, what do great savers do differently? There's like um, a super saver class of people. Oh, yeah. And if you know someone who is this, you get it because they, they just do everything a little bit differently than everyone else you know. Well, I know their last name is not Sprovac because <laughs> the, the, the way I was brought up, man, You've if they're... you a lot of expensive if, hobbies. Well, no, it's not. I mean, if my parents were given a credit card, they were going to use it and they were going to run it up, you know? Mm-hmm. It's it's just... And, and, and you know, I, I can always... I love the old Jim Borgman cartoon. I, I don't know if you ever saw it. I've got one hanging up in my so. house. Uh, West Side versus East Side Cincinnati. Yeah. But, I, I mean, there's some truth to it. West Side Cincinnatians... 
when when people come in and have me do a plan, it's incredible the savers that I sometimes see, and almost in every case from the west side of Cincinnati. It, it, it's it's something to be a saver to the nth degree. It's something that is part of the way you were brought up. I, I mean, it's yeah. not something that you just read a book and, and changed. There's a book that a lot of people have read called The Millionaire uh, Next Door, and it's yeah. not about you know coming up with this great idea that made you millions. It's about, no, really basic money-saving tips that you can incorporate in your life no matter how much money you make, and you will have an incredibly successful life and retirement if you stick to the basics. It's not, it's not, it's not rocket science. It's yeah. just, you know, being willing to drive the old car, not having to buy the biggest McMansion in the neighborhood, you know, be happy with a three-bedroom, one-and-a-half bath house. It's that sort of thing. Ed, Ed Fink, who started our company, made the greatest point. He said, who the heck started the term starter home? It yeah. makes you think like at some point, if you're still in the home that you were in Realtors. when you first got married, <laughs> that you're losing out, right? Like yeah. the, one of the most brilliant decisions that you could make money-wise is to buy a home that you can afford when you're first starting out and working and and stick with it if if at all possible uh and then you know then think about how much money you can have socked away this group of people yes they don't have the biggest houses they don't drive the newer cars but on average this group we call them super savers saves about seventeen thousand dollars a year in a 401k like yeah. they're really close to maxing out their 401k because they know that's how they're going to build wealth you know, I, I sat down with both of my sons when they graduated college and just, you know, um, gave them some basics, which, which I think every parent should do, but not every parent is a CFP. And, and one of the mm -hmm. first things I said was, um, put 10% of your money, uh, of your, your uh, paycheck, into your 401k. I don't care if you think that's a lot. Just do it. And they did. And what you don't see, you don't spend. And yeah. I'm not going to tell you what they've got in their 401ks, obviously, but it's a lot of money by the time they're in their mid-30s. It's incredible if you can just set some basic savings rules up when you're young. It is amazing how much money that money can make over time. Compounding is a great, great term. And, and yes, how much you make, right, how much you bring home does matter. But I also know lots of people who bring home really big paychecks, and they are not super savers yeah. because they're spending it the minute it comes in the door. You mentioned that West Side versus East Side mes mentality. Um, you know, those West Siders, you know. You know, you're, you've been working hard. You're saving the money, you, not too showy about it. Mm -hmm. uh, and even middle income savers are able to contribute about 5% of the start of their careers just by putting it aside. And to your point, you don't miss it. No, and, and, and that's the key. Just payroll deduction is a great way to go. I, I love this story of, of uh, somebody named Aaron Ross, a 30-year-old who learned a lot from, from his mom. And, and, you know, when he went back to, to live at home after college, mom said, okay, I'm either going to charge you $1,000 rent or you're going to put $1,000 into an index fund that's your money. Mm -hmm. Which would you prefer? So yeah. that started this this kid, well, 30-year-old isn't exactly a kid, <laughs> and, into a savings program, and that is so key, that lesson. And same thing, right? Same person. He drives his dad's old beat-up pickup truck. He doesn't have a flashy new car. These are the decisions that make the difference. All right, so how do you deed your home? How is your home deeded? It might be something that you never think about, but you probably should, and we'll get into why. Joining us tonight, Mark Reckman. He's our estate planning expert from the law firm of Wood and Lamping. Uh, you know, Mark, this is something that most of us don't consider, but you say we probably should, huh? 
Well, you know, the funny thing is buying a house is a, is a big deal. And the detail about how you titled your house seems uh, um, sort of meaningless compared to all the really active things that are going on in your mind. How am I like going to raise Like appliances and carpet, right? <laughs> That's right. And you go to a closing and there's an inch thick stack of paper. Yeah. And someone casually asks you, how do you want your uh, house titled? You give them an answer. You may not know what you're saying and you certainly don't remember what you told them. Okay, so let's talk about what the options are and the pros and cons of those options. Well, some people will put that title to their house in their name. In other words, a, a man or a woman buys a house, and he or she puts it in just one name and, and his or her name alone. Now, what that means in my world is that at their death, that property will be subject to probate administration and will pass to the beneficiaries under their will. Now, Amy, there's nothing wrong with that, but it is not the most cost-effective alternative. Okay, so what are the other options then there? Not just one of you, but you put it in both of your names? Yes, so you, you can put property in two names or more for that matter. But we need to be smart about that because there is two different ways that people can jointly own property. One way we call tenants in common. And this is very common uh, among business partners. So let's say that my brother and I decide to buy a four-family as investment property. And so we take the property and we title it in the name of Mark and Rick uh, as tenants in common. And what Mm -hmm. that means is that my share, my half of that property, is subject to my will and is subject to probate in my estate. On the other hand, two people can put their names on a deed with joint and survivorship language, so that if my wife and I buy our residence, um, I may choose to put it in the name of Mark and Lynn, joint with right of survivorship. Under that circumstance, when one of us dies, the survivor automatically gets the title, and it avoids probate administration. That saves oh, anywhere between two to $4,000 in probate fees. Yeah, it's funny, Mark, because you're right. I mean, when when you're going through the process of buying a home and someone quickly asks you how you want that house title, you, you really don't think through this. But the answer actually has some much longer, even money implications in it. Let's talk about what other options you might have. Well, another alternative is to place the property in the name of a trustee. Now, there's two kinds of trustees. There's what we call a blind trustee or a naked trustee, and this is somebody who takes title on behalf of someone else under an oral agreement or an oral trust. It's a bad, it, it's, it's a bad idea, Amy. It, it, it's used more commonly than I wish, uh, and boy, I saw a mess probably 10 years ago where the um, property was put in the name of a trustee who was holding it on behalf of someone else, and then the trustee died, and mm-hmm. there was no written documentation to tell us who really owned the property. So blind or naked trustee is an option. It's not a good one. The alternative is what's called a disclosed trustee, and that's a trustee who's operating under a written trust agreement. And that's quite common and quite favorable. Under those conditions, a property in a living trust that is titled that way before I die means that that house will avoid probate administration. Again, it saves two to $4,000 in fees. Mark, you've been doing this for a long time, and you have so many stories, and I think so much of what you say is so powerful because you're saying it because you've seen some of the worst-case scenarios go down. Uh, Anything that come to mind as far as, hey, why this is so important when we're making these decisions? Well, a woman came to me, oh, just a couple of months ago. Her husband had died, and the two of them had everything titled in their names together. They had bank accounts. They had brokerage accounts, CDs, and their real estate. 
So she got a lot of death certificates from the funeral home, and she made the rounds of all the financial institutions filling out forms and passing out death certificates, and that effectively transferred all of those assets into her name and took her husband's name off. Now, she she was in my office because she was now down to the house. The house was the only thing left, and she handed me a copy of the deed. I looked at the deed, and sure enough, it was in both names, but as tenants in common, not mm. as joint tenants. So what that means is that his share did not automatically pass at his death to her. It passed instead under the terms of his will. Now, it's not a big deal because he had a will, and the will left everything to his wife. So we opened a probate estate. We ran the house through probate. The probate court issued what's called a certificate of transfer, and that put the house into her name, and all was fine except I sent her a bill for $3,500 plus filing fees, because that's the time that it took for me to do that project. Now, $3,500, it's not the end of the world, and it it worked out just fine, but had that property been titled joint survivorship, we could have done the whole thing for less than $500. Ah, so when you talk about the fact that when you are buying property, this is something that is as critical as any part of it that you think through. It is because there are some true long-term ramifications of what the costs could be when you're making these decisions, sometimes on the fly when you're at a closing. Well, that's right. And so you have to think this stuff ahead a little bit. And and if you have not, then take out your deed, take a look at it. If it's not set up correctly, we can fix it. Just Call your lawyer, and he or she will prepare a new deed and and fix it. It's not hard to do. That's a great point because I think some people who are listening tonight, Mark, will say, well, I don't even know what, what mine is, how mine is deeded. Uh, and, you know, if it's wrong, is there anything I can do, right? We've had this property for 10, 15, 20 years. It doesn't matter how long you've had it. You do have an option. That, it's a simple fix, Amy. Good to know. All right. Great insights uh, tonight from our estate planning expert from the law firm of Wood and Lamping, Mark Rackman. You've been listening to Simply Money here on 55KRC, the talk station. You've been listening to the best of Simply Money. Now, if you could do us a favor, send this show to a friend if you think they may benefit from it, too. At All Worth Financial, we help you retire better.